Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm joined by the fierce and fabulous Carolina Peterson, whose recently published book, The Effortless Perfection Myth, is just what the doctor ordered. In it, Carolina explores the pressures felt by so many college women to be smart, accomplished, fit, beautiful, and popular, all without visible effort. She also writes in her book about her own story of self-discovery. As a public policy and women's studies major at Duke University, Carolina struggled with depression, anxiety, and disordered eating. Since then, she's been writing, TED talking, and mentoring young women all across the country and from all different socioeconomic and ethnic racial backgrounds, really pushing back against the narrative that perfectionism is just an issue facing rich, white girls at elite universities. Kara, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Let's start by defining effortless perfection. Effortless perfection is a term that was coined at my alma mater, Duke University, back in 2003, but has since been used to describe the cultural climate on campuses all across the U.S. So it's basically this you know, idea that you talked about before. You're supposed to have perfect grades, body, social life, but of course, it's just a natural expression of who you are and takes no sweat equity at all. What I have found is it tends to create these environments where people are so set on making it seem like they have everything at all points in time that when they do inevitably run into struggle, they tend to think they're the only ones. So they feel very isolated and alone in those struggles. And so things like depression and anxiety, self-harm, alcoholism, eating disorders, all of that tend to become a lot worse than they might otherwise be. Let's go right into your story. Tell me the gory details of your quest for perfectionism. And I don't actually think that it was conscious. What was it like for you? You know, in high school, I was definitely identified as this sort of golden girl through various awards and lofty expectations. So I went off to college fully thinking like, I am on the ultimate path to success. And this is what, you know, everyone wants for me and what I want for myself. Then by my sophomore year, I had an eating disorder and my junior year, I was having anxiety attacks. And my senior year, I had a major depressive episode. So if I was supposed to be the shining example of someone who made it or who had it all, then something was seriously wrong, especially because I knew it wasn't just me. I looked around at a lot of my friends and the women I was mentoring, and they seemed to be struggling just the same. I think a lot of us go off to college expecting the best four years of our lives, and we're really shocked to find ourselves struggling. And a lot of times it's the people who seem to have it the most together who actually are struggling the worst. 
your story resonates so much. It resonates with me in particular because that was very much similar to what happened in my situation. In high school, I was an athlete. I was a student. I was actually the valedictorian of my class, which I don't say out loud much, but I just have to say it out loud because it's kind of like sets you up for this expectation moving forward. And as you said, people say college is the best four years of your life. Reminds me of motherhood where people say this is the most magical time of your life when actually it's really difficult. And college is not a guarantee to be the best four years of your life. In fact, for me, like it was for you, it was, it was extremely difficult and fraught. Perfection and the myth of it is like walking into a den of vipers because perfection doesn't exist. And so when you're striving for something that is unattainable, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure. I learned the hard way. And again, this was not conscious that getting a B plus metaphorically and literally was better than getting an A plus. I mean, I've had to learn that throughout my whole life. I'm a recovering perfectionist, I say. Women who are successful and ambitious need to be successful and ambitious. I think we need to not discourage women from being ambitious and to reaching their full potential. And I don't think that's what you're saying. I think we also need to recognize that the world is imperfect. There's so much emphasis on outcome when really process is crucial. We need to give each other a little grace as we move through these chapters of our life. You make so many different good points. I'm like, oh, I have this thought and this thought. You know, when you call yourself a rehabilitated perfectionist, I, same thing, rehabilitated perfectionist, reformed good girl. I think a lot of it is, I'm not saying women shouldn't try to succeed and be these boss ladies who are out there running the world. But I do think we need to really think about where our sense of motivation comes from. I also think you made a really critical point when you said like a lot of people who are chasing perfection don't necessarily realize that they're doing it. Right. So I think perfectionism gets written off as this very like superficial obsession with flawless appearances. Part of my work is about emphasizing that it actually is like a serious mental health issue. Mm -hmm. It's a coping mechanism that's often used by those who struggle with anxiety and are desperate for a sense of control. So it's much more about a difficulty with uncertainty and trying to cope than sort of, I want everyone to think I'm perfect and flawless and, you know, think I'm the best. I think we sometimes confuse perfectionism with narcissism. Like, at least for me, getting good grades, eating, quote, perfectly, exercising obsessively was not about me trying to show anybody up. It wasn't about pressure from my parents or anybody in my life. It was an internal drive to numb uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. I didn't have a vocabulary going into college about mental health. I didn't have a vocabulary to discuss with myself and other people what it feels like to feel vulnerable, to feel out of control, to feel anxious, to feel disappointed, and to be human. It's not that I was like out of touch with reality. I mean, I, I was probably like you, like I come from a very loving, warm, close family. I have tons of friends. It was an internal absence for me of language for myself and a difficulty understanding that I needed to accept things that I couldn't control. I just tried to numb uncomfortable feelings. Some people do it with alcohol. Some people do it with recreational drugs. Some people do it with shopping and what have you. But I realized that perfectionism, as you said earlier, Carolina, perfectionism is a coping strategy that is not ultimately productive. 
And that leads to its own problems. You brought up another great point earlier where you were talking about, again, on the outside, not necessarily seeming like you'd be the type of person who is you know, struggling with depression or anxiety or whatever. I noticed a trend among a lot of my interviewees where they sort of felt like they were being questioned. Like your mm-hmm. life looks so good from the outside. You go to this top 10 school, you get these great internships, you post all these awesome, fun looking pictures on social media. Like how can you possibly be depressed or anxious? Like you have the world at your fingertips. And so a lot of them really felt like whatever they were going through wasn't quote bad enough to Mm -hmm, be mm -hmm. feeling the way that they were feeling like, oh, I haven't earned these mental health struggles. And so there was definitely this fear of being seen as like weak, shallow, unappreciative, uh, attention seeking to ask for help for anything less than the worst case scenario. And so mental health becomes this weird kind of contest when it really shouldn't be, you know, pain is pain and hurt is hurt. And just because somebody else has gone through something so much worse and seems fine, doesn't mean that like, I'm not allowed to ask for help or need help for whatever it is I'm going through. I talk sometimes about the suffering Olympics and how it doesn't exist, that there's plenty of suffering to go around. Some of my patients will come in and say to me, you know, well, I have these set of concerns and complaints and I'm lonely, I'm isolated, I'm grieving, but, you know, I don't live in the Ukraine, so who am I to say that I'm blue? Those comparisons obviously are rooted in empathy for other people and a perspective on the world, which is lovely, but it also deprives us the ability to have self-compassion. You made a really good point earlier that perfectionism is like a behavioral coping strategy that seems on the outside to be about being competitive or trying to one-up someone else or being self-involved when actually we need to ask the question to ourselves, what's behind the curtain there? Like what's actually going on internally that's driving these behaviors? So for you, what was going on? I think that there's, you know, certainly plenty of places to point a finger at. Some of my interviewees talked about pressure from parents and their communities to succeed. For me, I feel like struggling with effortless perfection was honestly about being addicted to reassurance given by outside approval. Mm. So a lot of my internal dialogue in high school and college was what will make them proud? What will they think of me? How can I prove my worth to them? And I really wish someone had done me the favor of asking me, like, who is this mysterious them? (laughs) After some probing, I might have realized that like this perfectionist drive had a lot less to do with gaining approval from this never satisfied, you know, outside them and a lot more to do with keeping my own personal insecurities at bay. There's this really great quote by Marianne Williamson. She says, Until we've met the monsters inside ourselves, we keep trying to slay them in our outer worlds. Mm. And so I think, you know, this them that I struggled with was really like a projection of my own internal struggles on the rest of the world. And I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the fact that such intense pressure could actually be coming from within myself. It felt like healing was really about learning to live with those demons and those imperfections and those things that I don't necessarily love about myself instead of compartmentalizing them in walls made of compliments and awards and like leadership titles. Give me an example of a moment in your life where you dared to be vulnerable and kind of shed the armor of perfectionism. Give me an example of where you shed that armor and dare to be vulnerable 
and it was hard. And then you realized, oh, wait a minute, this is actually the way life is. Honestly, in college, that was my thing. Like, I love being a mentor and I very quickly learned the importance of having role models that we look up to who are willing to be vulnerable. A lot of people are sort of pointing to like, oh, I want to be like X, Y, and Z person, but you know, they seem so perfect in this and that, like, I'll never be able to accomplish what they've accomplished. And when that person then turns around and says, no, 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 like, I am this, but also have experienced, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, my final year at Duke, I wrote a column for, you know, our student newspaper. And I talked about a lot of this stuff and, you know, how it's important to show enough of our own vulnerabilities that others don't feel the need to hide their own. That became part of my identity. Instead of trying to be cool for the sake of being cool or like having to do all this posturing that occurs in some of these intense uh, university environments, let's be the person who gives people space to be who they really are and like not have to put on that armor. And I think that's, you know, how we really defeat the myth is we give each other permission to just be more real for lack of a better, you know, phrasing. I think that's right. I think leadership has to include honesty with ourselves, honesty with people you're mentoring in your case, and an authentic view of oneself. If I think about the mentors through my life, the ones that have really affected me the most are the ones who have shared their humanity, who have been humble, and who have been honest about their struggles. The same in my social life. I mean, I don't tend to hang out with people who are like, my life is perfect. And they post their family photo on Instagram being like, this is just the most magical, perfect family that I created and good for me. I mean, first of all, it's like, when you live long enough, you realize that's just not actually <laughs> happening. And secondly, it's not... It's not sustainable. It's not, it, well, it's, it's not sustainable, but it's not, it doesn't like, I'm not attracted to people who are posturing like that. It's just not real. And I think, you know, the glue in friendships for me and the glue in my patient-doctor relationships is that kind of shared authenticity and honesty. It's just too exhausting and ultimately unproductive to be anything but yourself. You know, you take a risk in showing that vulnerable side yeah. of yourself. I think when I am meeting new people or growing relationships or, you know, whatever, not that it's like that intentional, but I find that I want to be the person who like drops the little hint or opportunity to like share that thing that's deeper. Mm. And you sort of learn the people that you want to be friends with, or at least who are the right people for me are those who hear that little thing and they enter into that space and they open up as opposed to the people who kind of shrink away maybe even like stomp on you a little bit for it. Like, you can't talk about that. Like, oh, like, you know, and think that they're better or this or that. And that's really telling. And so you have to be okay with, okay, if I'm going to be vulnerable, that means I'm legitimately making myself vulnerable. And I have to be confident and comfortable with X, Y, and Z part of my life to share. But, you know, vulnerabilities are really like these gems that we can use for growing relationships because 
you're showing that person, like, I'm going to trust you with this part of me and trust that like, you won't use it against me, even if you could. And I think that is, again, the building blocks of building those relationships that allow us to feel supported when we're going through hard times, when we're struggling with anxiety and depression and, you know, whatever else. It's clear to me you're writing this book to help women who didn't have the kind of language that you wish you'd had in college and to help people reframe what it means to be human as a college student. You're very clear about the myth of perfection not being only something that well-off white women face. This is actually a pervasive problem in our culture. So tell me about that. As a writer and as a feminist, I think it's really critical to understand that if you're intending to reach all women, you can't just solely focus on gender. Because, you know, women of color, their race and their gender are inextricably joined. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. You know, it's the same for LGBTQ women, women in lower socioeconomic classes. As a woman studies major at Duke, I learned that the number one thing that I could get wrong as a feminist who is white and straight and privileged is not understanding, you know, if I want to reach all women and provide support to all women, then I need to include these topics of race and sexuality and class in my work. You know, effortless perfection is a nuanced phenomenon, and I'm likely to experience it in a different way than, say, like a first-generation college student or a Black bisexual, you know, student. And that's part of why I interviewed women at 15-plus different schools across the U.S. to make sure that, you know, I was capturing that nuance in a way that felt applicable and accessible to all those who, you know, read it and need it. I loved your TED talk. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it was so great. I mean, here you were on the stage with someone who had a very similar relationship with food rooted in anxiety and shame, who looked different from you and had a very different background. You know, Afton was someone I looked up to in college, actually. She was the director of this like monologue program, theater performance. I reached back out to her when I was writing my book because of a monologue that she had written about being an obese person on Duke's campus and how people make moral and ethical assumptions about mm -hmm. you, like you're lazy or you're this or that. And talking about like, she... <laughs> was valedictorian of her high school. She went to public school and made it to Duke. Like, how does it make sense to call a person like that, you know, lazy or this or that? And so the really big takeaway from the talk was to sort of say, these stereotypes and misconceptions we have around disordered eating are harming people from getting the help they need. Because I fit the stereotype, you know, I got help in college, but I also pushed it off because I was embarrassed that I did fit the stereotype, like blonde sorority girl who like, you know, whereas it's taken often until now and she's, you know, in her like early mid thirties to get help for binge eating because no one really looked at her with the same eyes, you know, the same kindness and empathy. And in the talk, I really wanted to drive home that we are both just flip sides of the same coin. Like both of us are struggling with perfectionist tendencies, anxiety, past trauma, whatever. And like, we're both using maladaptive eating behaviors to cope. 
And that looks different on the outside, but it's really similar on the inside. And so that was what that TED talk was really supposed to push is like, let's be more aware of that eating disorders are not just anorexia. They're all of these other things and they look all of these other ways and they're all valid and everyone deserves help. What was really interesting about that TED talk, Carolina, was that it reflects so much of what I see in my practice. Modern medicine right now puts people on the scale, tells them to eat healthy and exercise more, see you next year. But in the Mm. case of someone like you on that TED stage, to tell you to eat healthy and exercise more because you're anxious (laughs) would be the wrong thing to tell you. Similarly, your colleague who was up there on stage might have been told eat less, exercise more, you're overweight, which obviously she knew. The issue here is not necessarily the content of what you're eating. It's about the relationship with food. It's about how are you using food and how are you abusing food to numb, medicate uncomfortable feelings. And so what was really beautiful about that TED Talk was that you guys obviously are totally different people, different backgrounds, different skin colors, but you both were using food in a way that was ultimately abusive to your own body. I was really thrilled to be up on that stage with her because I think, you know, we developed a sense of trust that we were both going to do justice to each other's stories. And it meant a lot to have that trust from her. Her experience of going to the doctor's office was a lot of what you just said. There's a line in the TEDx talk where she says, I would go into the doctor and they'd say, girl, you're fat, like go lose weight. And no one was peering into the underlying issues going on there. What's interesting about like perfectionism and how it connects to disordered eating and X, Y, and Z is like my therapist explained to me that my eating disorder started off as a healthy coping Mm -hmm. mechanism. Like you feel stressed, go exercise. Like you are what you eat, like, you know, eat healthy. It'll give you more energy or this or that or whatever. And so what's interesting is that like perfectionism or being like a very all or nothing person, which is me, (laughs) it takes what should be a healthy coping Mm -hmm. mechanism, but then brings it to this extreme that then turns it into an unhealthy coping mechanism. You said it. So there's certain coping mechanisms that, you know, from the beginning tend to be, you know, negative and they're noticed that way, you know, like shopping addiction or gambling addiction or alcoholism or drug use or all these things that are being used to cope, but are sort of recognizably like not good for you. And you're not supposed to do them in big doses, if at all. It's really complicated for a person who's used to being that overachiever, that go-getter, that I live off of the praise that I'm being given for accomplishing X, Y, and Z to then be told, oh, this thing that got you all this praise and that, you know, has made you this person that people like look up to actually like you did that too much and now it's bad. Right. And it's also complicated with an eating disorder, you know, most of the time recovery from an addiction, which is really what I think disordered eating is, it's so much more about your relationship with your food and the mindset and the feeling out of control around food and the behaviors you engage in and the disassociation from your body and body dysmorphia and all that. When it comes to like alcoholism, like a recovering alcoholic, says, I will not drink alcohol anymore. And they remove themselves from the source of their addiction. You can't remove yourself from food in order to solve anorexia or whatever. Like that was your issue in the first place. So it's all about like putting yourself in 
the situations that provoke the anxiety, that provoke those negative feelings. And you can't solve the problem by avoidance. And that makes it just so much more complicated, especially because food is everywhere. It's where you bond with people. It's where you have dinner with your family and your friends and you go out to drinks. It's like such a big part of life and love and how we connect with one another. The relationship with food for so many women and men, but for so many women is often the most complex fraught relationship people have. And it mirrors for some people, other relationships with other people, with themselves. And as you said, not that putting alcohol is easy for someone who has an alcohol addiction, but you can put it on a shelf. Managing a relationship with food that's wonky is like walking around with a tiger on a leash. You have to grapple with it. You have to reckon with it. You have to deal with it ideally five times a day as you eat. In our culture, in our world, food is social. It's also emotional. I don't know anybody who doesn't have an emotional relationship with food. I mean, there's the rare patient I'll see who, for example, needs to lose 50 pounds for their cholesterol and their arthritic knees. And I say, here's what I would suggest. And they come back in a year and they've lost the 50 pounds and they have no issue. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a robot. But you're right. I mean, it's the moderation that's hard. You're being forced to reckon with the feelings that generated the inappropriate relationship with food in the first place every single day. So it's interesting what you said about Afton Taylor, your colleague on the TED stage with you, that she was told by doctors, you're overweight, exercise more. The meta message being like, what's your problem? When obesity and overweight for so many people is, in my mind, a a symptom of something else that's going on. Obviously, obesity is informed by so many factors, socioeconomic, biologic, hormonal, behavioral, emotional. It's not just one thing. But to deprive people a conversation about what's going on behind the curtain is really to ignore people's humanity. And I see it all the time. I see that my patients who struggle with obesity have been shamed by themselves and the medical profession. They are treated differently in society. And that does nothing for their underlying issues that never have been addressed or need to be addressed. With my patients who struggle with weight, we talk not only about the number on the scale, which of course can be relevant to blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes risk. We talk about relationship with food. We talk about underlying emotional issues that could be driving an urge to overeat or restrict during the day because they want to be, quote, good, which so many people do. And then, you know, the levees break at four or five o'clock and people overeat at night. And that's just a cycle so many people are in. I guess my point is that it's very easy to assume people based on a number on the scale or how they appear to the world when in health and in medicine, it's crucial to understand the human being behind the numbers. I also think that Afton would say a lot of it is about making sure that our doctors and our clinicians and whatnot have the cultural competency to understand that there's different taboos and body ideals in different racial communities. One of the most important parts of her recovery process was reading this book that was focused on what disordered eating looks like in Black communities and what some of the specifics are there that go unrecognized because, again, the stereotype is like a white rich woman's disease. It's so important that we're taking into account, again, like how does race impact how people receive healthcare? 100%. And 
I mean, I'm here to tell people as a doctor, you know, here are the potential risks and harms of any habit, behavior, or genetically informed medical issue. But who am I to tell you how to live your life, what your core values are, what you want your body to look like? There's an interplay there that has to be understood when we're delivering care. I think it's really important that you're kind of blowing open these stereotypes and shining a light on the universality of perfectionism among young women. Absolutely. We live in a world where social media is sort of woven to the fabric of our everyday lives, where imagery is ubiquitous, imagery of perfect bodies. At the same time, we have this sort of acceptance. There's like a body acceptance, body positivity movement in social media and in the world, which is good. What do you think are the solutions for women who are maybe listening to this and thinking, gosh, I exercise, I eat healthy. Like, what's your problem? Like, this is good for me. The biggest takeaway from my book that I want people to get and just from you know the work I do and the talks I do and podcasts and whatnot is understanding how effortless perfection really creates this sense that love is something that we're supposed to earn by being pretty enough or smart enough or agreeable enough. And that's a really dangerous lie you know, love and affection, they can't be felt by the receiver when that person thinks that those things only come as the result of measuring up to an ideal, or when they think that every bit of love they receive has to be earned through some vigilant micromanagement of their own nature. I spent a whole book writing about how do we fix this. I think it's having the vocabulary to understand what it is we're experiencing. Kind of similar to how would the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan wrote this book and suddenly women were like, oh, that thing that I was experiencing wasn't just me and it's not just a me problem and it's actually this much bigger community universal wide problem and it has this name and here's other words and language that I need to be able to express how I'm feeling and connect with others who feel the same way and find that common space to begin to even address what's going on. And then I think on a personal level, it's really about thinking like, where do my motivations come from? I feel like for a lot of my friends in college and even now, like we're really pushed by our fears as opposed to pulled by our passions. If I don't get this job or I don't get this perfect grade or whatever, like the consequences will be dire. But it's like, will they really be? What actually will happen? This fear of just like, I must outrun failure instead of figuring out when I do fail. And when I'm in those moments where I'm feeling shame or like I didn't succeed that thing I really wanted to succeed at within me, I have this more powerful force that comes out and stands up for myself and can get through that moment. And if you haven't met that part of yourself, you're going to continue to try to outrun all of those monsters and that fear of failure. I never, ever want to glamorize depression or anxiety or wear it as a badge of honor or any of that because it's extremely difficult and I'd rather not go back there ever. But when I was there, having experienced that lowest of low, I now know that there is a part of me that can answer back and that can pull me through that and do the hard work and be there for myself. And now that I've met that other deeper part of myself, I just feel so much more confident in my ability to deal with any future challenges. It's interesting. My patients who are struggling with anxiety and depression who are college-aged 
and they're in therapy or they had to take a semester off or a year off. You know, certainly during COVID, kids were faced with enormous emotional health challenges. They'll say to me things like, "Ugh, why me? Why do I have to not run like everybody else on campus because I'm struggling with addiction to exercise? Why me? Do I have to take a semester off? Why do I have to be in therapy when everybody else seems to be effortlessly going about their business? And I often will say, you know, this is an investment in your future humanity. I mean, I don't say it in that lofty way because they'd want to murder me, but I will say like, you're really investing in your whole health here. I wish I had been given the tools I've learned over my life back in college, vocabulary, support, the self-compassion, because we all face these various parts of ourselves at some point. And it's in a way like the college education in my mind shouldn't just be about the subjects you're studying. It should be about self-examination and accepting things we cannot control and then leaning into the things we can control, which is compassion, self-awareness and learning that sometimes you know, getting a B plus is better than getting an A plus. Yeah. Getting a B plus does not make you a B plus person. Just like our cholesterol and our weight don't define our whole health, our grades, our resumes, our accomplishments don't define our humanity. It's a hard lesson to learn. And I'm just so grateful that you're writing about this with such honesty and authenticity and really being vulnerable. I mean, you're putting yourself out there, Carolina. Yes. <laughs> it's a little scary. I did want to address something you said earlier, which is that why me? Like, why do I have to be the person who has to take this mess yes. or this or that? I feel like my thought to that would be so many people go through life, like make it all the way through or, you know, are in their 50s before they realize like my relationship with food, for example, has been negatively impacting my life and impacting my relationships or my relationship with food. My daughter has been watching how I talk about my body and how I eat and now she's struggling and I feel like that's my fault and X, Y, and Z thing. I feel like while hitting rock bottom is pretty awful while you're there, I'm just so thankful that I hit a moment that was bad enough that my brain was able to step back and recognize like, we don't want this for ourselves. And this is happening because of X, Y, and Z. If it's possible that it can take away some of my favorite parts of myself just to be skinny, then I'm overhauling this system. Like I'm not living the rest of my life this way. I just got married in April. My partner read my book and he was like, it's so odd reading the section on disordered eating because like you don't do any of that stuff. And you don't seem to think that way. And you have such a healthy relationship with food. And I've known you for like eight years. And I'm like, yeah, I worked really, really hard for you to never have to know that part of me. I'm really proud that you don't have to know that part Isn't of me. Isn't that wonderful? That, like, I mean, I you're really in recovery. Yeah. And I honestly, when I was in recovery, I was like, okay, I'm in recovery. Like this will be better. But like those thoughts in the back of my head and my relationship with my body and trying on clothes and this, like that's never really going to change. Like we can pretend, but you know, okay. I truly legitimately, like, I wish I could just go back and like hug that, you know, little girl and be like, no, no, no. Recovery is a real thing. You have to be realistic. Like sometimes you're going to try on a dress. It's not going to look great. And you're not going to feel like the best for two seconds, but it lasts for two seconds as opposed to two weeks of dieting and running and this and that and learning how to actually sit with those emotions and process them instead of 
going and exercising or going and binging or telling myself I'm not going to eat for X, Y, and Z amount of time. Like I just feel so much healthier and so much more in touch. I can set a better example as a teacher, as an educator, as a partner, as a friend. It is not fun to do the work. I feel so much better as a teacher, as a speaker, as a friend, as a partner, a daughter, sort of knowing like I did X, Y, and Z work so that I'm not continuing to perpetuate unhealthy mindsets within my community. I can set that example for my students. They can, you know, look up to me while also looking up to healthy habits and mindsets. That's leadership right there. Drawing on your expertise, all the work you've done and all of your research and writing, and then marrying that with your personal experience and being vulnerable and modeling that courage and not needing to earn acceptance from anybody else and ultimately being accepting of yourself as you are. That's really the holy grail of health right there. I can't wait to see what this book does for your career. I can't wait to see you on the TED stage again. And I'm just impressed and proud of who you are, Carolina. And thank you for all the work you're doing for young women today. Thank you. And I so appreciate you having me on your platform to talk about this. I'm so impressed by the work that you do as well. And so to be able to collaborate and have a conversation is pretty awesome for me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.